Well, once again, please open your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 10 is where I would like to share from God's Word. Now, as we go chapter by chapter through the Holy Scriptures, one of the the great things about doing it this way is that we hit the points that God wants to emphasize and we don't just allow the preacher to get on some hobby horse of his own or just talk about what's current or what's interesting, but instead we allow God to set the table for us spiritually so that we're eating the spiritual food and drinking the spiritual drink that is most healthful for us. And those who have been well established in the faith, they get to a point where sometimes they want to hear something new. They don't want to hear the same thing they heard 25 years ago when they first started coming to church. And and here's the thing, you you don't really want something new. You might think you want something new, but God knows better. And here in Romans, what we're getting is grounded in the gospel truth. That same gospel that you heard that turned you from darkness to light, that made you a Christian, that's the same gospel that we need each day to be taking our guilt and to putting it on the cross of Jesus Christ, to be confessing our sins and finding that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the same reminders that we need. And I find that one generation sometimes forgets to pass on what needs to be passed on to the next generation. Our generation says, well, we know this, we've heard it, we we are well established in this, and we can move on to other things. But the church isn't just one generation. The church is multiple generations. And the the young people growing up in this church, they need to be grounded and established in the doctrines of the faith that some of us take for granted. But if we take it for granted, then the younger generation will not grab onto these things, they will not understand it, and they will be quickly moved away from the hope of the gospel. We don't want that to happen. So that's why we're preaching through this letter of Paul to the Romans, something that you may have heard preachers preach a number of times if you are a longtime Christian in this community. But we need the reminders, and we have young people here who are hearing it for the first time, and so I pray that God will give me the words to speak it for all of our edification. At the end of our service last week, I believe it was Dan that that asked the question, why would anyone want to change the gospel? The gospel is such a wonderful thing. It's such good news. It's got no downside to the gospel, and it solves every problem that people are facing. Why would anyone want to tamper with such perfection? And that just shows you how how fallen and how twisted the mind of mankind is, that he would take something that is, is good news and not like it and reject it. And so we want to proclaim good news, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's take a look at our text in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. And our outline here, this week we're moving on to verses 14 to 21 in our text. Our subject is going to be the need to proclaim the gospel. So we see that's where it starts there in verses 14 and 15. We're going to see that this good news, it's good news, and yet it is rejected. And that shows how fallen mankind is to reject God's grace and mercy and his free gift of eternal life. That makes no sense. And then we'll see the excuses that mankind offers for their unbelief in verses 18 through 21 and why those excuses do not hold water. So let's start in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, 
All day long have I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. When we're talking about good news, we're talking about Jesus Christ. We're talking about God's gift in the Savior when he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that's not just flowery poetic language. That's just not coming up with something that sounds spiritual. This is literally true. That there was a man who was born among us who by his life and by his death and by his resurrection from the dead, he has abolished death. Notice it doesn't say he will abolish death. It says he has abolished death. Because the death knell for death took place when Jesus Christ died and he rose again from the dead. That was God overcoming and defeating sin. And by overcoming and defeating sin, God has defeated death. And when we're talking about sin, what we're talking about is evil. Mankind has a moral evil that indwells and controls and and sets on fire the course of history. And we all experience the evil of mankind and we will all experience the death that comes from that evil. The good news, good news is everlasting life. The good news is immortality. The good news is that Jesus Christ has come. That's what we're talking about here in Romans. That's what we're talking about at Christmas time. And I love how Paul puts it there in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. So let's dig into the outline, the need for proclaiming this message. Paul gives us the chain in verses 14 and 15. He says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And there at the beginning of verse 14, of course, it connects with verse 13, where we left off last week. Paul had quoted from Joel chapter 2, verse 32, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's this universalism in the gospel. When I say universalism, I don't mean that every person who's ever been born is going to end up being saved. What I mean is that it's a universal opportunity that for all people in all places, there's the opportunity to hear the good news about Jesus Christ, to believe it and be saved by calling on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But this truth that everyone who calls on God's name will be saved is dependent upon several things. First of all, they need to know who the Lord is. They can't call on someone if they don't know who they're calling on. They have to believe in that person, that that person is able to save them, is able to deal with their guilty conscience, is able to defeat the death that they fear. They need to know about this person. They can't call on him in whom they have not believed. And they can't believe in him in whom they have never heard. So they've got to hear, they've got to believe, and that leads to the act of calling upon the name of the Lord. But they can't hear unless someone tells them. How are they to hear without someone preaching? You might wonder what the word preach means. We only use it in the context of church. You know, the only preachers that you know about are church people who stand up in a pulpit and preach like I'm preaching now. But the actual word in the time of Paul had a much broader meaning, a much broader understanding. It wasn't just used to refer to people standing up in synagogue and teaching God's word in that public setting. But no, it was a word that was used of anybody who would proclaim a message. Anybody who would go out into the public square and declare a message And normally, it was one that was declared with a degree of authority. The messengers, the heralds, as they were also called, would travel from one place to another place in order to bring news and proclamations, for example, from a king. A king is dwelling in one place. And the kings back then, they didn't have television. They didn't have radio. There was no way to see the king if you were 60 miles away from the king like you could do with a president or a congressperson now. And so to get the message out, they actually had to send people who would run from village to village and say, this is what the king decrees. This is what he said. And they would have to do the same thing with the news. I was watching a movie not too long ago about the Old West and they had people whose job it was was to ride from one community to another community on their horse They'd bring the newspapers from New York and from all the places back east and they'd they'd come out west and they'd say, well, here's the news from New York. 
Because you didn't get it on the radio. You didn't get it through your television. You didn't get it on the internet. You needed a herald. You needed somebody who would proclaim the message. Well, now we live in a day, thanks be to God, where the good news of Jesus Christ can be proclaimed through the radio. The good news of Jesus Christ can be proclaimed through the internet. The good news of Jesus Christ can be proclaimed on the television, although you don't find it there very often, do you? But we have more ways of getting the good news of Jesus Christ out to people instantaneously in this time than anyone could have ever conceived of in world history. And this is providential. Think about the fact that we live in a time where there's more people on the earth than there ever has been. Billions of people on the earth. And in this time where God has allowed mankind to multiply so greatly, he's also allowed the means of proclamation to become so powerful and effective. This is not the time for us to get lazy. This is not the time for us to sit back and say, all right, well, the message is out there on the internet. Anybody who wants to know the message can download the message and listen to it instantaneously anywhere in the world. Now's not the time to get lazy. Just because we have the means available for the proclamation, we've got to be pointing people to that proclamation. You've got to be encouraging and exhorting people, the message is there. Listen to the message. I've got all of my series on Romans available at any time for anyone that has an internet connection. They don't have to come to church. They don't have to meet anybody. They don't have to get out of their pajamas. They can sit and drink their coffee and, and listen to the message that we are proclaiming. You've got to let people know what opportunities there are around them. And there's nothing special about my proclamation of the gospel, but you can use it as a personal connection with your friends and family and say, you know, I think the good news of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world. And my church, they teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and I would just think it would be great for you if you would take the time to listen to this message that Timothy preached on the gospel this is, I think, what we really need to hear. Be pointing people to it. You don't even have to be able to preach the message. You can just tell people, here's the message, here's the link, please listen to it. It's very easy. God's never made it easier for us, so let's not be lazy. Let's take advantage of the opportunities because people need the Lord and God is sending out proclaimers. And the proclaimers are getting the word out in many different ways. Those who are running with the good news, so to speak, so that everyone is able to hear about Jesus, believe on him, and call on him to be saved. Now, Titus chapter 1, verse 3, is one of the key verses for us this morning. I'd like you to turn there with me. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verse 3. I want to start reading there in verse 2. Titus chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, In hope of eternal life, that hope of eternal life, this is a big deal. Eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Wow, that's, that's an amazing thought. God had promised this before the ages began. He had it all planned out. He knew exactly how he was going to make it known. And now, verse 3, at the proper time, God has manifested in his word the eternal life that God wants us to have. God has manifested it in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Notice how important the proclamation of the gospel is. This is how people receive eternal life. Think about that. The task of proclaiming the good news is a vital chain in how God is bringing eternal life to those who would otherwise experience eternal destruction, eternal death in the lake of fire. Think about the contrast between an eternity in the lake of fire versus an eternity in the city of God. And then think about how important it is that we, we get the message out to people. And we exhort and encourage people, listen to this message. Listen to it. And talk with me about it if you have questions. Now, God sends people. Come back to Romans. Romans chapter 11. He sends the word out. 
People have to hear it. People have to be sent to proclaim it. He says that in verse 15. How are they to preach unless they are sent? Now, this word sent is the verb form from which we get the word apostle. So an apostle is someone who is sent officially by an authority. And so the apostles of Jesus were selected by Jesus to be sent on the mission that he had for them. The apostle Paul, when he was called for his missionary journeys, the Holy Spirit spoke through prophecy to the church where he was ministering and said, set aside for me Barnabas and Paul for the ministry for which I have called them. And then they were sent out, not by the church, but the text there says they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, he distributes gifts among the church and he has those that he has sent out for pioneering missions. Now, we're going to have Mission Sunday coming up here in a few months and you've got the missions board on the back with letters from some of our missionaries, people that God has sent out to different parts of the country, different parts of the world, in order to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in places where God has ordained for them to minister. But you understand this, that if God hasn't sent you someplace else, he has sent you here. That, that I am sent, so to speak, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in Firth, to fulfill the ministry that God has given me among my friends and family and my brothers and sisters in Christ where I am. And in a sense, I know I'm getting a little bit out of the text here, in a sense, you guys are all sent on a mission too. You don't all have the gift of preaching, but you all have the gospel. And we are all sent to do the work of an evangelist we are all commanded to be ready at any time to tell others about the hope that we have within us. We are commanded to rescue the perishing. So the word of God needs to be ministered here as much as it needs to be ministered everywhere else. And by God's grace, through the internet, the message that is being proclaimed in this pulpit that you are supporting is going out to places all around the world. And I enjoy every month getting the report of, of where the messages are being downloaded in nations that you would never think would find us here in Firth. Now, we want to be a sending church and we all want to say, here I am, send me to my family, to my friends, to my community. I wanted to share with you also this morning Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Here, the apostles are preaching and, and they're making it known to the Jewish people, but then the message goes out to all nations shortly afterwards, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That there's no salvation in following the teachings of Muhammad. There is no salvation in following the teachings of Joseph Smith. There is no salvation in following the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy. There's one name that is given. There's one person that we must believe and follow if we are going to be saved, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is very explicit on this point. He doesn't say, well, here's one way that you can come to me. Believe in Jesus, the one that I have sent. No, he says, there is no other way. There's salvation in no one else. This is the only name. You call on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, to be saved, or you are not saved. That is the exclusivity of the message that is supported by what Paul is arguing here. How, they, how can they call on him in whom they've not believed? Don't believe the lies of the inclusive gospel that says, well, there's sincere believers in other religions and so it's not that important that we go and try to convert them to Christianity. If they are sincerely seeking after God in their own way, and their own culture, they'll make it, they'll get to heaven. God will not shut them out. That's a lie. It's important that we get the message to people in other religions who are sincerely believing a false way and who will sincerely end up in hell if they do not call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The gospel is exclusive in that sense. But remember, what we've already mentioned and talked about is how inclusive the gospel is. Now, one other verse here on the exclusivity is what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 24. 
I don't know how anyone who believes in an inclusive gospel could make sense of John 8.24 in their mind. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. It doesn't say unless you do your best to, to seek God in your own way, you will die in your sins. There's only one way to not die in your sins, and that is that you must believe that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God, the Savior, the one who died on the cross to pay for sins, the only sacrifice for sins, the only one who can bring us to God and deal with our guilt and give us eternal life. Unless you believe that, you will die in your sins. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. But as we said, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you don't like the fact that the gospel is narrow, recognize this. If you think, well, it's not fair that God wouldn't give me the opportunity to be saved through following my religion, just believe in Jesus Christ. There's no reason why you can't believe in Jesus Christ. There's no reason why you have to hold on to a false religion. There's no reason why you have to remain in false beliefs. Give it up. It's not going to do you any good and embrace the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's for everyone. You can't complain and say that God has shut you out. He has not shut you out. He has said, come and receive everyone who thirsts. Come and drink of the water of life freely, without cost. I'm not asking anything from you. God doesn't want anything from you. He wants to give you the gift. Why would you want to change a gospel like that? Now, because the good news is so great, you might think, well, everyone should believe it. Everyone who hears it should be like, wow, free gift of eternal life. Now I don't have to give all that money to that preacher on television. Now I don't have to work so hard to, to try to earn my place in heaven and, and I can know that right now I've got eternal life. This is good news. This is going to set my soul free from all the slavery that false religion has heaped upon my shoulders. You think everyone would embrace this. But we find out in verses 16 and 17, look again in Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, 16 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Verse 16 is the main point of this paragraph. Paul is talking about how they have to have a preacher and how the preacher has to be sent and all of that. In order to get to this main point, that the problem is not that people haven't heard. The problem is not that God has not sent the messengers. The problem is that people have not obeyed the gospel. Now, when 21st century evangelicals hear the phrase, obey the gospel, they're just like, what? I, I, I thought we were supposed to believe the gospel. What's this thing about obeying the gospel? That sounds like work salvation or something. And so let me explain to you what Paul means when he talks about obey the gospel. And, and this is not just some mistake of Paul. It's not like he meant to write believe and then he accidentally wrote obey. This is something that he does throughout the book. In Romans chapter 1 verse 5, he says, it's through Christ that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. That Paul, writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he sees a vital connection, a strong connection between faith and obedience. And that seems strange to, to people who don't understand what Paul means when he says that we are saved by faith alone. But another verse at the end of Romans, Romans 16:26, he writes this way, But now has been disclosed, this gospel, this good news. It has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. You see that again. But not only here in Romans. It's not just a message that he wanted to emphasize to this church, but also as he wrote to the Thessalonians in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 8, he says that Jesus Christ is going to be revealed in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the obedience of faith? And what does it mean to obey the gospel? 
And how is that not a contradiction of what Paul has said when he says we're saved by faith and not by works of obedience? The law is one way of trying to be righteous before God. And the law commands you, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and then you will be righteous. So if you obey the law to be perfect, you will do well. How are you doing on that? Nobody does that. Everybody fails. And so the gospel comes in with another way to be righteous, and the gospel has a command. Did you realize that? The gospel has a command attached to it. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Those are commands. Repent and believe. And so when you hear the good news about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done, you don't just say, oh, well, that's interesting. I'm glad God did that. Fine. No. The command is repent and believe. They're two sides of the same coin, flip sides of the same truth. That there's a, a heart response that is called for, that is actually commanded by God. As Paul preached in the Greek cities, he said, God is now commanding all people everywhere to repent. God is commanding people to respond properly to the good news. So we want to get the good news out to people, but as good as the good news is, the tragedy is not all have obeyed the gospel. They haven't done what the gospel commands them to do. Not only is Paul the one who speaks in this terminology, but Peter. He says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Speaking of the persecution that the church is experiencing, this is like judgment being experienced by the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You could think and say accurately that people go to hell because they have broken God's law. They've lied, they've stolen, they've hated in their heart, they've dishonored their parents, they've worshipped other gods and allowed a factory of idols to run their life. You could say that's the reason why people go to hell. And that's true. But you could also say people go to hell because they do not obey the gospel. If they would obey the gospel and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they wouldn't have to pay for those sins of breaking the Ten Commandments, of lying and stealing and hating, blaspheming God. That there's a, a pathway to God that is open for those who will obey the command to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul quotes here from Isaiah chapter 53, another Old Testament quotation, as Romans 9 through 11 is just filled with it. And here, the Old Testament is from Isaiah 53, verse 1. You see it in verse 15, the second half of the verse. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Excuse me, actually, that's Isaiah 52.7, and I kind of skipped over that one earlier, so it's good that I'm, I'm bringing it up here. So he quotes from Isaiah 52.7 there, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But then in verse 16, now we have, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. And that is the verse that is from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. And I want to go back to Isaiah, as I always do. Whenever Paul quotes it, it gives me the opportunity to take us back to this amazing book. So keep your marker there in Romans and come back to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, where we had our scripture reading earlier. Now, there's not the best chapter break here, as I've pointed out before, that, that really this most powerful and amazing poem that starts at the end of chapter 52, there in verses 13 to 15, continues on through chapter 53, verse 12. And so it would actually be great if chapter 53 started after Isaiah 52, 12, and we had an extra three verses there in Isaiah chapter 53. But... Since Paul has already quoted from chapter 52 in the previous verse, let's take a look at that in its context, Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah is writing against the backdrop, which is still future in his time, 
but he's writing against the backdrop of the coming captivity of Israel, that they are going to be captured by the Assyrians and they're going to be captured by the Babylonians and they're going to be hauled off into exile in a foreign land. And that's where we have the talk about how they were sold for nothing, taken away for nothing, and God's name is being blasphemed in Isaiah 52, verses 5 and 6, because all the nations are looking at the desolation of Israel, Samaria, and Jerusalem and saying, look how weak their God is. He wasn't able to protect them against the gods of the Assyrians and the gods of the Babylonians. And so God's name is being blasphemed because God is allowing these other nations to punish his people for their sins. And so the good news comes in. It's, it's a good news of salvation. It's a good news of happiness the beautiful feet upon the mountains are those who are running back to Zion and telling the people who are left there that the captivity is over, that God is going to restore his people, that God is going to bless Jerusalem, that God is going to bring back the covenantal blessings and remove the curses that had fallen upon his people. That's the good news there in verse 7. And then we come down to the end of the chapter and, and Isaiah is now looking forward not just to the return from exile, which didn't really solve Israel's problem, their sin problem. Now he's looking to the final solution, the, the one who is going to take away their sins by the sacrifice of himself. And that's what Isaiah chapter 53 is all about. It's the fulcrum upon which the whole book, Isaiah 40 through 66, hinges on this chapter, which is the most important event in history. Okay? That's, that's saying a lot. There's a lot that's happened in history, and there's a lot that God has done. But, but what Isaiah 53 describes is the most important event in history. And it starts back in chapter 52, verse 13, but we're looking at chapter 53, verse 1, where the prophet says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this arm of the Lord is the same person that is identified back in chapter 52, verse 13, as my servant. The servant of the Lord. He's not only here in Isaiah 53, but he also appears in Isaiah chapter 42, chapter 49, and chapter 50. And it all builds and leads up to this key chapter about the servant of the Lord. And so when you're studying through Isaiah 40 through 66, you understand Israel has a sin problem. They are experiencing destruction, desolation because of their sin as a result of God's righteous judgment. But that God wants to bless his people, the final word for Israel is not destruction and desolation, but is eternal glory. And how is God going to go from a sinful people to a righteous people? How is God going to move from a history of people who for a thousand years are rebelling against God and then move them to a thousand year kingdom of blessing? How is God going to change their heart? How is God going to deal with their sin? How is God going to save his people? That's the question. And Isaiah 53 is the answer. And everything that's been leading up to Isaiah 53 has been setting up that answer. And everything that comes after Isaiah 53 in this amazing book is going to show you the consequences, the results, the good news that we are now able to proclaim because of what Jesus Christ did as described in Isaiah 53. But notice this about Isaiah 53. Not only is it a prediction about Jesus Christ's death, but it's also a prediction of why Jesus Christ would die. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why Jesus Christ died. It predicts the death of Christ. It predicts the reason for the death of Christ, solving the sin problem. But not only that, there's more in this chapter. It also predicts the resurrection of Christ. Because at the end of the chapter, he's blessed and he's doing well, even after he had died. And how is somebody doing well after they've died unless they've been raised from the dead? And there's more. 
Not only does this chapter predict the death of Christ, not only does it predict the reason for his death, not only does it predict the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but this chapter also predicts the reaction of the Jewish people to Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Lord, who has believed our report? God sent his son. He sent the Savior. He did exactly what God said he was going to do. He solves the sin problem and brings eternal salvation. He brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. And he sends the apostles to Jerusalem to preach the good news. And they say, eh, no thanks. We're not going to obey the gospel. We're not going to repent. We're not going to believe. We're going to continue on in our own stubborn way. Exactly as God predicted. Exactly as God predicted. And that's Paul's point in bringing it up. Remember where we are in Romans 9 through 11, that Paul is answering the question, why haven't the Jews believed? If Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the one who died for sins, if he is the one who was raised again according to the Scriptures, then why don't the Jewish people who love the Scriptures believe in him? Because the Scriptures predicted that they wouldn't. And because they are stubborn and hard-hearted and obstinate people. That's Paul's point. Come back to Romans chapter 10. The tragedy is, God sent this amazing good news. He sent the preachers. He sent the apostles that he himself had chosen to deliver that message. That he himself indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit to perform miracles and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the people of Israel. And they said, no. We will persecute the apostles just like we persecuted Jesus Christ. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, Paul recaps verses 14 through 15 in verse 17. Because having made the point here that he wanted to make regarding the good news being rejected, he still wants to go on and talk about their excuses for unbelief. And those excuses have a root, so to speak, in verses 14 and 15. So in verse 17, Paul summarizes what he had said in a longer way at the opening of this paragraph. And he says, So... Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So they need to believe on him to be saved. They need to hear the word of Christ. So that brings up the objections, their excuses for unbelief in verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? This is excuse number one. They haven't heard. And Paul says, that's a lousy excuse. Because myself... And the other apostles, we've been going around everywhere, in every village, from place to place, traveling by sea, traveling by road. We have taken the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere where we can find Jewish people. We go to the synagogue and we tell them the message. And to illustrate his point, he uses the words of Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, Psalm 19, verse 4, where Paul is quoting from here, is not about the proclamation of the message of the written word. That comes later in the psalm. Psalm 19 is an amazing psalm about the revelation of God. But here at the beginning of Psalm 19, Paul is talking about how God has revealed himself through nature and that the light of the sun rising in the east and setting in the west, that that it travels throughout the world and the sun and the sky and all that God has made is blazoning forth the message of God to all people who dwell on the earth to recognize that there is an awesome God who has created this world we live in. And that message is universal as people live all over the earth and they can see the sky that God has made. The voice that is talked about in Psalm 19.4 is the inaudible voice of creation, which is saying without words, God made me. A powerful, almighty, all-wise God has created this habitation for living creatures. That's the voice. But Paul is not quoting from it to illustrate that truth, but instead, as he did earlier, He's appropriating the words in order to draw an analogy. This is a creative use, again, of the Old Testament, where Paul is saying, just like general revelation has gone out universally, so in the same way this special revelation of the truth of Jesus Christ has been sent out into the whole earth. 
And this causes some exegetes and theologians to say, well, what do you mean by that, Paul? Because, you know, I mean, yeah, you guys had traveled far and wide to preach the gospel, but you hadn't made it to Spain yet. At the end of the letter, we'll find out about Paul's plans to travel to Spain. And, and what about across the ocean? And they didn't know about the new world, but they hadn't been proclaimed here in the Americas yet. And so people say, well, how can Paul say that there's been a universal proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ when he's writing before 60 AD. What about those who haven't heard? This is something Paul does throughout his letters. In the beginning of this book, he said also, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And then again, when we come to Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, the Apostle Paul wrote to that church and said, the hope of the gospel that you have heard which has been proclaimed, notice, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. When Paul speaks of the proclamation of the gospel being accomplished in all creation under heaven, what he's saying is the opportunity has gone out, that God is sending forth the messengers and the proclaimers, and that if the message hasn't yet reached some individual in some place, somewhere. It's not because God hasn't sent the messengers, it's because people have not responded. And that the proclamation of the gospel, if it had been properly received, would have been universally known. God has done his part in proclaiming the good news and sending out the messengers. If people don't listen, if they don't pass on the message, well, that's not God's fault because God has sent this out to the whole world, and it has been preached in so many places. Well, there's a lot more I could say on that, but for time's sake, we've got to keep moving. If you have questions on that, feel free to talk it over, because it is an interesting subject. But let's, let's wrap this up in verses 18 through 21 and look at the second excuse for unbelief. The first excuse was, they haven't heard. And Paul says, oh, God has sent the message out, they have heard. And the second excuse is, it's a confusing message. Maybe the message has gone out, but it's kind of hard to understand. So that's why he says in verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? And you have to ask, well, what did they not understand? They didn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't understand the message of salvation for all who believe, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Jewish people, they thought, no, you've got to be Jewish. You've got to keep the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to convert to Judaism if you're going to be saved. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is, no, you don't have to become Jewish. You call the name of the Lord and you are saved. You believe in Jesus Christ. That's the message. And people say, well, well that would be hard for Israel to understand because God kind of misled the people of Israel by, by giving them the law and giving them the idea that you have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. But God never communicated to the people of Israel that message. That was their misunderstanding of the message, not God's failure to communicate. And people will often blame God for the mistakes of people. And they'll make excuses for themselves that are their own sins. And it's not an excuse for their sin, it's even more sin that they've heaped upon themselves. That they twisted and distorted the message, but God had spoken clearly. And Paul is going to show us from quoting from the Old Testament that the message was not confusing. God's message was crystal clear, starting with Moses, going through Isaiah, and the people of Israel had no excuse for not understanding this. It's not, well, God, you told us this, and now you're telling us this, and you're contradicting yourself. It's like, no, you twisted my words. I've been saying the same thing all along, and you are the one who has rejected my message and spoken contrary to me. Very important that we get this straight. All right, so let's take a quick look at the verses that Paul quotes to support his argument. He says, Did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those that are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. This goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, the song of Moses is an indictment against Israel prophetically. That it's written before their history begins, but it tells them why they're going to be blameworthy for all of their future sins that they're going to commit against God in not trusting in Him and in worshiping idols. 
That's Deuteronomy chapter 32. So from the beginning, God made it clear to Israel that they were not righteous in themselves and they would never be righteous in themselves, that they needed the same mercy, the same grace that God was going to offer to the Gentiles, just like John the Baptist came preaching repentance to the Jewish people. The same message from the beginning up until the time of Jesus and his apostles. God has always been telling Israel, you're not righteous, you can't keep the law to be righteous, you need a Savior. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, is where God makes it clear to Israel from the beginning that he is going to move them to jealousy through a foreign nation that is not a nation that he has chosen. And this corresponds beautifully with the situation that Paul finds himself in. And we'll look at that more as we get into Romans chapter 11. Paul's going to expand on this in the next chapter. But starting with Moses, he then moves on to Isaiah. And Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. This is Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. Isaiah 65, verse 1. And Paul is saying that the right way to understand what Isaiah writes here is that this has been prophetically fulfilled in the salvation of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are those who did not seek God. They are those who did not ask for God. But they are the ones who are getting saved when the message of Jesus Christ comes. And that was predicted by Isaiah the prophet. And then, in verse 21, he quotes the next verse. Isaiah 65, verse 2. So he has Isaiah 65, 1 as a reference to Gentile salvation, and Isaiah 65, 2 as the prediction of Israel's hardness of heart, their rejection. Of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. A contrary people is a people that takes the opposite position of what you are saying because they hate you. That's a contrary person. I hate you, and so therefore, whatever you say, I'm going to take the opposite position. You ever seen anybody do that? You ever see a whole group of people do that? That's Israel's attitude towards God. Jesus Christ, you say this, that's, I'm going to say just the opposite out of spite for you. That's how hard they are in their heart. shows you the sinfulness of sin the wickedness of unbelief. And be not mistaken, unbelief is wickedness. To not obey the gospel, to hear the message of God's free grace in Jesus Christ and a gift of pardon for all that you've done against him at the cost of his own son and to throw that back in his face and say, I don't need it, no thank you. There's no sin worse than that. If you trample under feet the blood of his son, look out for his vengeance. Look out for his vengeance. Unbelief is a serious trespass. Unbelief is a grave sin against God. So why don't the Jews believe? The problem is not that God can't communicate well. The Old Testament just wasn't very clear. And now this New Testament comes along and it seems so different, you can understand why the Jewish people would have a hard time accepting it and believing it. Wrong. Wrong. The Old Testament is abundantly clear. There's no way you can read the Old Testament and come to the conclusion that Judaism is right and that Christianity is wrong unless you have an evil, twisted heart against God. The message is clear. It's understandable. God has communicated well. God is not hiding himself. The problem is Jew and Gentile who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, who do not obey the gospel, they are spiritually deaf and they are spiritually blind. And they need their eyes opened. They need their ears to be healed. They need their heart to be softened. They need to be born again by the power of God. Or they will continue in their stubborn rejection of God, being contrary to all that he says and does. The second application we've also talked about 
It's time to be fervent in evangelism. Be a Calvinist who works harder than an Arminian. Don't think God doesn't need us. Don't think the job's already done. Don't think that God can do it by himself whenever he wants to. Something like that was told to William Carey when he wanted to begin his missionary work by Calvinists. We can't use those excuses. God has commanded, God has sent, and he has told you, you, to pray that the Lord will send workers out into the harvest. When was the last time you prayed that God would send workers out into the harvest? It's his command that you do that. So do it today. We can't use the excuse that no one's going to listen because Calvinism teaches us that God has those whom he has chosen to listen. So you can't say they're not going to listen. There will be some who listen. There's no excuse that we can offer for being slack in evangelism. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul said it. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. What a great example. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. You want purpose? You want a mission? You want something that's going to get you out of bed in the morning and give you a reason to get your rest at night? Gospel work. There's no greater mission. There's no greater work. Make Jesus Christ known. Point people to the truth. Tell them, have you listened to this message? You need to respond to this message. You need to believe this message. You need what God is offering you. I've got it. It's changed everything for me. I love you. I want you to have it. Let's pray for that kind of heart, okay? Bow your heads with me. Lord God, the world around us is not innocent in their rejection and unbelief. But we also are not innocent in our lack of care and concern. Lord, give us the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ who wept over Jerusalem. Give us the heart of the Apostle Paul who did all things for the sake of the gospel. Fill us with his spirit, a spirit of love for you, love for our neighbor, recognizing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important message, it's the most important thing anyone will ever hear. And as we've been equipped and trained through this letter of Paul to the Romans and the, the exposition and preaching of this letter in our church this last year, may we do something with what we've been entrusted with. Lord, lay some soul upon our heart that we can point towards Jesus Christ so that you might call and save and do the work that you alone can do. Amen.